I'm Paulina Lee, and this is Here at Haas, a student-run podcast connecting you to all Haasies and the faculty that change our lives. This week on Here at Haas, we are joined by Dr. Kurt Beyer, lecturer at Haas specializing in entrepreneurship and innovation, a Navy veteran, and the founder of the California Innovation Fund. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Amazing. How is your week going so far? Well, it's been busy. We're getting ready for what we call Demo Day, right? Where we launch about 30 new potential startups. You're part of that experience. It's Mm -hmm. one of the highlights of my year. And there's a lot of work to be done between now and the beginning of May. (laughs) I bet. I bet. Well, I probably say this too much, but I will say I absolutely love interviewing our faculty at Haas because it's so fascinating to hear about life experiences and career paths. And you've had an interesting one. So undergrad in engineering and history at the Naval Academy while also Mm -hmm. playing baseball, master of economics and philosophy from Oxford while rowing and playing basketball and serving as a naval officer. So first off, thank you for your service. Thank you. And would love for you to just share a little bit more about your career from the Navy to now. Wow. That's a wide span. I know. This is your highlights reel. (laughs) I'm an old man. That's that's a long time, you know? (laughs) Well, one thing I think I learned is that you can plan your life out. So I thought I could when I was a teenager. And it was a pretty big decision, as you can imagine, to decide to go to Annapolis at that age because it locks you into a certain career. And I thought it was the right thing for me, being a son of immigrants, knowing that the role of the United States military and the United States government really affected the outcome of my parents' lives in uh, Europe. And I think I wanted to be very much part of that system when I came of age. And that's what I did. I went to Annapolis and I mean, I thought I was going to be a naval aviator, which I was, but then eventually be a captain of an aircraft carrier and an admiral and spend my entire career serving the country. And I did that for a while. I did that until the age of 29. And then I was injured and had to make a decision. And so I decided to start over again and build a new career and a new life. So tell us what happened next. I know you also got a PhD. You served and you were a professor as well. Walk me through those first couple steps after serving. Well, once I got over the tremendous depression of having to leave naval aviation, I was stationed in a uh, F-14 fighter squadron in Virginia Beach. And my life up to that point had been fully on the East Coast and in Europe. So when I was injured and realized that I was going to leave the service, I did the opposite of what my life's experience had been up to that point. I decided to move to San Francisco apply to UC California, Berkeley, got into a PhD program there. I did not know a single person in the Bay Area, so I left my natural network of friends and family. But I think I I needed to do that to start all over. That must have been quite a switch, fighter planes to UC Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, the, the, there was a lot less pressure at University of California. Even though I know there's <laughs> pressure in doing a PhD, my sense of what pressure is is probably a little different from others. Definitely. So why did you decide to go the PhD route and what was your research about? So I was fascinated with the process of innovation how different technologies evolve. I had, up to that point, degrees in economics, history, and engineering. 
So in a way, I saw my PhD work at University of California, Berkeley, kind of pulling together all my academic interests. It just so happened to be the, the dot-com boom at the same time. So what a fascinating time mm-hmm. to live in California and San Francisco during this incredible innovation, which ironically grew out of the U.S. military. So there's a research organization that's part of DOD called ARPA. Most people don't know about it. It's called Advanced Research Projects Agency. And so ARPANET was the original internet. It then became Milnet. So believe it or not, when I attended Annapolis in 1986, I was issued a computer. It was connected to Milnet by the internet. We had email already. We had websites. We got our grades and communicated with our professors through this internet system. And this was in the mid 80s. So by the time I got to San Francisco in the the late 90s and people were telling me about this amazing thing called the internet, I had already (laughs) been working on it for about 12 years. That's amazing. I think it's so funny too, being a 90s baby. Sometimes you just can't fathom the world pre-internet, but you were really at the crux of it. Yeah, I got to see it, the transition from pre to post, right? Definitely. So after your PhD, you founded your first business. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I actually founded a business with a a friend of mine in the Bay Area, and then 9-11 happened. Mm. And so actually business number one was a casualty of 9-11. And I think that's what I try to get across to the, the entrepreneur students as well, is you have to reinvent your notion of failure because failure is so common when you're an entrepreneur and failure can come from external events as well, like 9-11. So that was the first one. That prompted us, actually, I just got married. That prompted us to take a professorship back at the U.S. Naval Academy as a civilian Mm -hmm. professor, where I helped start the new IT program. That definitely was kind of a calling to serve again after 9-11, where even graduates from Annapolis who were, were no longer serving in the military felt an obligation to do our part to serve. So I was a civilian professor, and then we started a digital media company because that was the beginning of the digital music and digital video revolution. So that company, uh, Riptopia, we built out and worked on for six years. Uh, Part of it was while I was a professor, but then we ended up having to leave Annapolis after the program got up and running and came back to San Francisco to work on the startup full-time. And tell me a little bit about that. What was your exit strategy on your startup? What were your initial learnings from this, call it first success you had? Well, everything in life is both a success and a failure. And so there was so much positive learning from the Riptopia experience. First, to to build something from scratch. I think the biggest shock is the first time you meet someone else who's talking about your startup and you'd never met them before. So the Mm. fact that your brand starts extending beyond your friends and family, but it really taught me the importance of timing. The fact that so much of the success of a startup is correlated with large macro trends in the world. So these could be economic, social, political, and technical. So when we started the digital media company, it was the right place at the right time. So much of the world's content was trapped in analog storage. So in order to create this internet world, which is now just normal to us, we had to shift everything over from 
analog to digital. And so I'd like to think that I was a small part of that evolution from the analog to the digital. We had grand plans. We were eventually going to become what today is Spotify. We had built out the largest database of digital music and we're working on the largest database of digital video. And then something called the financial crisis of 2008 hit, mm. which was in some ways from a financial point of view, much more difficult for startups than this last COVID crisis that we saw. So that forced us to change our plans to pretty much sell off our assets quicker than we wanted. But with every book chapter closing, it opens up yet another book chapter. So even though if you asked me in 2007, what the experience of 2008 and nine were the financial crisis, I would say it was a very difficult time in my life. And it undermined maybe some of the, the goals that we had for that first startup company. I can also look back and say that it, it opened up a tremendous amount of new doors. So in terms of chapter, it must have been so interesting coming out of the financial crisis and having just sold the assets of your startup. It looks like you then went on to share your experiences and being an advisor to different founders and startups, which is something you still do today. Curious why that seemed to be your next path or if there were other businesses that you built? So my wife, Johanna, is an executive coach and, and a life coach. I think she invented the whole space. She was doing it already in the late 90s and early 2000s. I hired her <laughs> during the financial crisis <laughs> to figure out what our next path would be. And she took me through a process wherein you look at what your true core purposes in life. Hmm. And mine ended up being to bring out the potential in others. That's something I've always been good at from being a, a captain of a baseball or a basketball team to being a naval aviator in my squadron to being a, a startup CEO. So that was my guiding principle then for the next step. How do I bring out the potential in others? Well, I had learned so much through my PhD research on innovation, through being a, an acting entrepreneur, through being a leader and a manager during my military days, that I thought the next stage was wherein I start sharing more of that knowledge with others. So I ended up building out two separate careers out of the financial crisis. One was an academic career. So I approached UC Berkeley. I knew that they had taught an entrepreneurship program. I felt that because of my practical knowledge and my academic research that I could teach it very well. So uh, they gave me a shot in 2010. Long story short, I'm now teaching five to six classes of very expanded entrepreneurship after doing this for 12 years. And I think the program has done wonderfully. I have to thank former Dean Rich Lyons and current Dean Ann Harrison for making entrepreneurship a priority at Haas and at UC Berkeley. It's one of the proudest things I've done in my life is to help build out the entrepreneurship program. The second area that I, I worked on was I wanted to build a business around helping other entrepreneurs, in particular, the financial challenges of both being a founder in a company and you're building 
this new financial entity called a startup, as well as how that affects their personal finances. And so what, what started out as a thought paper ended up being a small division of Smith Barney and then Morgan Stanley. And then I ended up teaming up with a very small company called Parallel Advisors. And during our journey together, we built it into a 75-person advisory company with $6 billion under management. So I stepped down from uh, Parallel about a year and a half ago, but it was pretty much that two-pronged approach after the financial crisis, building out the entrepreneurship program, coaching and advising current entrepreneurs and startups that really helped me build a new type of expertise going forward. Oh, and I finished my book as well, finally. <laughs> yes, I have so many questions there, but before I step into kind of all three of those, would love to pause and have you tell me a little bit more about this purpose exercise. So, of course, oh. as someone getting ready to graduate, something I've been also thinking through and asking in a lot of my conversations is just that, like, what's your purpose? What is our purpose? Because to your point, you figure that out first, and then you're able to find the different things that help align with that purpose and those principles. So That's right. How did you identify that? Or what were some of the hard questions that you needed to ask yourself in order to get clarity? And you probably have experienced some of that learning in class already, right? Think about how much I push the concept of vision. You have to get the right vision for your startup. And what is vision based on? It's based on timing. It's based on the macro trends of the world around us, but it's very personal as well. It has to align with your purpose, your individual purpose, because you won't survive the rigors of building out a startup if that startup's vision is not aligned with your personal purposes. So my wife has a process and she uses a, a set of cards that probably have 60 or 70 different potential purposes on them. But then she takes you through a, a series of questions and eventually you bring it down to the top five and then eventually the top two. So mine was to bring out the potential in others and to protect people. And so when I think about my own journey in life prior to doing this with Johanna, it becomes pretty obvious that that is my purpose, those two things. I've always been attracted to jobs and making career decisions that align with those purposes. And I think this is the critical part of understanding your purpose. Sometimes if we listen too much to the external world, where the external mm. world is telling us, this is the best college to go to, this is the best job to work in, we can actually be pulled away from our purpose. So what your purpose is and what you're good at can be two different things. So for instance, I can do taxes well. I'm good at the detail stuff, but is it my purpose? If I became a CPA, would that bring out the talents <laughs> of others? Would, would I be protect? Yeah, maybe I'd be protecting people from a financial point of view, but it, it does not align with my purpose. Hmm. So since I've done that test and I encourage all my students to think about their own purpose as well. Every time someone offers me an opportunity or something to do, I put it against the litmus test of my purpose. And if that opportunity does not align with bringing out the potential in others or protecting others, 
then it is not the right thing for me. And I think I've just been happier and more content basing my life decisions based on understanding my own purpose. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I think I've been talking with a lot of classmates around how in business school, you have to say no more often than we have to say yes. Yes. And you have to have some clarity and, and prioritization. And I think as we get ready to graduate class of 2022, it'll be almost harder, if anything, if you don't have a clear purpose yes. to delineate that yes from now, because all of a sudden we're like, we have all this free time that we never had before. Yep. So it's been a lot of interesting conversations. So thank you for sharing. So teaching at Haas, so you've been at Haas since 2010. And if you could wave a magic wand or if Dean Harrison came to you and said, we need to add another course on entrepreneurship, what's missing from the current protocols that we just don't have time to cover in a three-unit course that you would add as an additional one? So I'm actually working on that right now with former Dean, Rich Lyons. Amazing. So he's now the, the first chief innovation officer of UC Berkeley. And he also has a new program that he calls Changemakers. So just as what he felt about Haas was that our great strength being UC Berkeley, being in the heart of Silicon Valley is entrepreneurship for the campus as a whole. Now, he thinks that Berkeley is a beacon of change, a beacon that creates change makers. So he wants to create a whole new curriculum around that for undergrads. And so he's tasked me with imagining a course wherein we take the lessons from entrepreneurs and teach anyone to understand and apply those lessons to their own career paths. So that's what we're working on right now. We want it to be a core course for undergrads. And so if they want to go into medicine or art or reporting, whatever path they take in life, what can be learned from the entrepreneur mindset that can be applied to these other areas as well? And it, it aligns with my purpose, right? Right. <laughs> to bring out the potential in others. So that's what I'm working on right now. We're hoping to launch that course in 2023. That's great. I always talk about how I come from like a very corporate background and family, right? I've worked at P&G for 10 years. My sister works at J&J. &J. My dad was at Kodak. My mom was at Xerox. So we're a big corporate family. <laughs> so what speaks to me when you say that is just like that entrepreneurial mindset, right? Mm. I think there is a, a certain way of thinking about risk reward and the way that you think about ideas and come to those ideas and open yourself up to different paths than going a more call it standard corporate. But you can also apply that entrepreneurial mindset as well in a corporate environment and think about how do you bring innovation or ask those questions because that's what helps move the needle too. But I think that's a really interesting concept. That's right. And so many people work in large corporate environments, right? So right. I think that it'll benefit larger corporations also to share some of this entrepreneurial mindset. Definitely. In our entrepreneurship class, we obviously not only learn the foundations of entrepreneurship, but we actually build a company and you alluded to this earlier. So it's been a lot of fun for me, like ideating to our three minute pitches on Darwin Day and hiring day where we build our team. So now we're in the trenches working through 
all the nitty gritty details. It's essentially like a startup accelerator you've put us through. Yep, pretty much. Without calling it that. So for you, like, why do you think that part of the course is so important versus obviously the more foundational, theoretical, what the mindset is? So you you started by saying that I was a student from Annapolis and from Oxford, but then I played baseball and I played basketball and I rode and I flew planes. So as you can tell that I have one foot in the academic world and one foot in the real world. I mean, that's who I am. I am a doer and I'm an academic. And I think that comes from my immigrant roots. My dad was a baker. My mom was a nurse. So much of my early experience was getting my hands dirty. So I think why I was attracted to entrepreneurship is it's that bridge between the theoretical and the practical. So we're trying to take research and scientific innovation that we create at UC Berkeley and turn it into practical products and services. So I think that fits who I am and what my interests are. I also have to admit, I'm a bit of a adrenaline junkie, right? So, you know, how do you replace... <laughs> the flying planes. <laughs> right? How do you replace that? Yeah. Launching off aircraft carriers, right? So the way you replace it is working in a an area of business that has a lot of uncertainty and a lot of risk. And I kind of thrive off that as well. So when I designed my my class, the way I teach entrepreneurship, I moved away from something that's theoretical to trying to marry the theoretical with the practical. And so I think that's what you are experiencing right now. Yeah. And I love it. I think it's, to your point, the right way to go through it. And I'm sure, of course, being at Haas for 10 plus years, you've seen all sorts of ideas. So I'm curious, any ideas that you saw pitched and then were picked by the class that you thought there's no way to succeed, but actually then had a successful exit or is doing well right now? The idea you came up with is the most unique idea <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> I know that's false, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the key there is the fact that I've learned that ideas aren't important. And I've said this a few times in class, right? Yes. So what happens is the, the original idea is just a kernel. It's just a vector that's maybe pointing us in a certain direction. But the magic of the class then is to continue to evolve that initial vector. And so I think I get the most enjoyment wherein I see what the original concept was at Darwin Day and then how it completely evolved and is totally <laughs> different at Demo Day. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that process of evolution, which is actually the secret. It's the process, which is the key. And so I see that with your team. I see that with other teams in our current class, right? We've come a long way from what that first idea is. And even after class, that process will continue until eventually that team decides to not move forward, which is totally fine, or to move forward and actually build something that can live and exist in the real world. That's the key. 
Exactly. And I'm sure you have lots of favorite children coming out of class, but (laughs) (laughs) do you have one idea or one startup that you're most proud of? It doesn't have to be like the most successful one, but one that you thought really went through the ups and downs and is quote unquote doing well now. I have to say I'm, I'm proud of the people, Hmm. not the companies. Right. So for me, people build startups, teams build startups. And so I've had just this wonderful opportunity to not only meet students, but befriend them over the years as well. I think of some of my earliest students, Christian Schaefer, who didn't build out her project in class. I still remember it. It was like the Pandora of coming up with good places to go at night in San Francisco. And she ended up finding this really tiny startup called Postmates. And she brought (laughs) literally our templates that you're using right now to Postmates and said, let me help set the strategy. Let me raise the money. As she became CFO, she built it out into a $2.4 billion company and sold it to Uber or Archit, who wanted to help kids be healthier when they play video games. And that doesn't sound like an interesting idea until you realize his concept eventually became Pokemon Go Niantic, right? And so what's fascinating about him was he didn't start the company externally. He went to Google, they created a team, they built out a prototype, and then he spun out of Google along with John Hankey, who was a former 295A Haas entrepreneurship student as well, who happened to build Keyhole which became Google Maps when Google acquired it. So there's just so many of these stories where you couldn't have projected the trajectory of the student, but the student had that entrepreneurial spirit where they kept on going and they kept on changing. Sometimes they failed. Sometimes they were an employee. Sometimes they were in founder. All of it is entrepreneurial. And so that's, I think, the other thing. I want to expand the notion of what it means to be an entrepreneur. It's not a 19-year-old college dropout who has (laughs) success on their first try and has an IPO, right? What an entrepreneur is, it's a professional who loves change, who loves to innovate. And if sometimes they're the investor, sometimes they're the the employee, if sometimes they're the co-founder, it's all being entrepreneurial. Right. No, I think that's a great, concept too. And we talked about a little bit earlier, right? Like the mindset is what's important. Yeah. And I think you do say in class, like ideas are a dime a dozen number of people in the world. Someone's probably thought of your idea, yeah. but it's the team, a little bit of the timing and maybe a little bit of luck. <laughs> yeah. No, luck's involved too, for sure. <laughs> As I think about the class, and this is probably going to be the question you might hate the most, but if you had to distill down all the advice that you give us over the semester and the advice that you are working with in the different startups you're engaged with, what for you are the three most pertinent things that an entrepreneur or someone who's thinking of becoming a founder needs to know? Good that you're asking me a very simple question to distill down my entire life. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your entire life's work. Three sentences. And experience. <laughs> treat people with respect Hmm. no matter who they are what level they are i'll give you an anecdote we just launched the california innovation fund as you know 
we sent on LinkedIn a post of the new website and I had incredibly tremendous response from that. And one person reached out to me and he said, you don't remember me probably from Annapolis, but I remember you, we were classmates and you were always so respectful and kind to me whenever you engaged with me. I am now the head of a family office and the husband and wife of this family office have done amazingly great things in, a, in American society and business. And they are so thrilled by you trying to create a, a private public VC fund that gives back to the university system and tell us how much you want and we'll write the check. So it's just that as a reminder of how I treated this person over 30 years ago hmm. impacted something today. So I think that's rule number one, treat people with respect. Rule number two in my life, I think, is keep your feet on the ground, stay humble. At the end of the day, I'm still a working class immigrant and I have a working class immigrant outlook and a working class immigrant work ethic. So I think that has served me very well through the years. And then I think rule number three is celebrate the small victories. We spend so much time getting down on ourselves, pointing out the things that aren't working, criticizing ourselves or others, where if you look at it, probably 90% of the time, we're all doing a pretty good job in life, right? Life's hard. Yeah. And so when good things happen and they don't have to be great things, they can be small things. Take a little time, acknowledge people, celebrate that victory. And I think those little victories, those little celebrations add up and keep you positive and optimistic going forward. That's great. I, I guess it's more life advice, but also advice for founders too, right? It's all the same, one and the same. All the same. <laughs> I guess in celebrating, you touched on it earlier, you wrote a book. I know in class you shared it was about Grace Hopper. So tell us a little bit about how you stumbled upon her story and then what compelled you to write a book. I think an aside, I, I asked one person once, like, why did you write a book? His advice was, don't do it. It's too much work. <laughs> so we'd love to know your journey. It is a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It took seven years of my life, but that's fine. When I was doing my PhD research, I wanted to look at what today we call the fourth industrial revolution. We weren't using that term yet when I was doing my PhD uh, from 1998 to 2002. And I pretty much mapped out the arc of that fourth industrial revolution. And along that arc, the person that kept on coming up was this woman named Grace Hopper. And what I found fascinating was every single startup in the Bay Area, especially that time during the dot-com boom, is built upon Grace Hopper's work. And I would ask people, hey, have you ever heard of Grace Hopper? And there wasn't a single person who knew who Grace Hopper was. It was pretty much like asking the question, to an electrical engineer, have you ever heard of Thomas Edison? Or to a Christian, have you ever heard of Jesus? Right? right. Like literally, this was the core key person yeah. during the first 30 years of the fourth industrial revolution. And yet no one knew about her. And I think that maybe was in part, she was a woman, she had no children, she was divorced. So I think 
the memory of her faded in some respects. So I felt like this obligation almost to write the story of the industrial fourth industrial revolution, but to put it in a timeline that honored her and make her kind of the centerpiece. So that's what I did. It's called Grace Hopper and the Invention of the Information Age. Yeah. And we'll definitely link to it in our show notes so that people can give it a read. I found it fascinating. I did a bunch of Googling when you mentioned it in class and then shared it because I think it was right around Women's History Month. So we used it as a trivia question in a a women's (laughs) event that I helped pull together. I'm trying to help you spread the word on Grace Hopper. Did people know who she was? Any right answers? They didn't initially. No, they didn't. Yeah, see, I mean, (laughs) we're getting there. We're getting getting there. there. Yeah. (laughs) And you talked about the California Innovation Fund, which you launched last year in your story earlier. So I guess getting back to purpose, how did this fit with your purpose and why you created it? And then would love to know a little bit about the fund and where you guys are now. So over these 12 years at UC Berkeley, I've gotten to see so many students create these incredible startups. And that is, in my mind, the the job of a public university, right? It's to take our incredible science and technical research that we do and try to apply it to the real world. I think that is the charter of the UC system founded in the 1800s. And one thing that I think frustrated myself and also Dean Lyons at the time was that we would have so many efforts to create this value. And then it was private sector, the private VCs and private equity funds, which would then benefit from that. And that's okay. That's well and good. I mean, that's right. But as a public university, it's very hard for us to expand initiatives outside of our public budgets that we receive from Sacramento, for instance. So I wrote a a one page thought paper to Rich about three years ago, which was called the, the question, the status quo fund. And it actually took from one of our principles at HOTS, right? That all of us at Berkeley should question the status quo. And is there a way to create, you know, this private public type of VC entity, wherein it acts like a private VC fund, it supports UC affiliated founders and helps them on their journey forward. Yet a large part of the carry, in this case, 50% of the general partner and management partner carry flows back to the university to fund the next generation of entrepreneurs and innovators. So what was a one page paper became a reality last December. And we publicly launched about a month ago, vast majority of the limited partners involved in fund one are Haas and Cal alumni. And we are focused on supporting UC affiliated startups. When we say UC, it's not just the Berkeley campus, but UCSF, UCLA, any of our UC system. We're looking at for fund one, mainly the late seed series, a series B rounds. We're already planning a fund two, which will be a larger fund. And we're just thrilled that we're able to hopefully not only support the current entrepreneurs, but send money back to support the next generation. It's amazing. It's a really innovative model. Does it exist anywhere else or with any other school systems similar? We 
did a lot of research. We have to give credit to actually two other funds at UC Berkeley, which I'd say were the prototypes for this. So one is called the Catalyst Fund, where we had an alumnus donate money, yet the requirement of the money was it had to become a VC fund. And they didn't know how to really do that. Like, how do you, how do you do that? <laughs> so Laura and her team were a big influence in kind of navigating something that was pretty tricky from a bureaucratic point of view. So Catalyst Fund, I'd say, is kind of the, the first generation. Skydeck, I'd say, would be then mm. the second generation, which is, okay, we have an accelerator, but how do we fund the startups and the accelerator? And then how do we pay for the accelerator? So I think Chun and Brian there, I'd say, are generation two. And then I would say that, you know, we're now this third generation, but I think the third generation is really going to open up the world to this, right? Like this, I think is not only a great model for the UC system, but mm -hmm. I mean, I could see it working at University of Michigan, UVA, any public school that is trying to bridge the gap between the private world and the public world. Totally. Have you made any investments or partnerships with startups that you're able to share? Yeah, we have two so far. Katana Bioscience. Marco came from Jennifer Doudna's CRISPR Institute. He was a PhD student of Jennifer. Jennifer just won the Nobel Prize. Casual. Casual, yeah. <laughs> and Marco took our entrepreneurship program class at the business school. He met Gio in class, who was an MBA student. And their project was Katana Bioscience in class. And they were able to get into Y Combinator. And then they raise money out of Y Combinator and they're well on their way. Our second investment is uh, Vrinda. Vrinda was also a former entrepreneurship program student, and she had worked for Visa prior to doing her MBA. And she was on that Sapphire team, one of the most successful credit cards at Visa. And when she applied for the card, she was rejected. So she was completely frustrated that she was on the team that created it, yet she got rejected. Oh my gosh. And from doing further research, she realized that the rejection rate for women is so much higher than the rejection rate for men for a variety of reasons. So her project in class was called Sequin, Sequin Card, where she wanted to build a credit card for women by women. And she also got a Y Combinator after class. And so we are invested in Vrinda and Sequin Card as well. Amazing. Well, in our last couple of minutes here, wanted to take a step off campus and get to know a little bit more about Kurt outside the classroom. So who's Kurt outside the classroom? How would your family describe you? Share a little bit about your family if you're open to it. Sure. I was raised by very strong women. They probably describe me as a, a pain in the butt a lot of times. <laughs> so I have two older sisters, my mom who worked two jobs. My dad had two sisters. My mom had two sisters. So I came to appreciate uh, strong women and I married a strong woman. Johanna and I like to say we are the first successful marriage ever from internet dating. Ooh. There was a, a startup during the dot-com boom called matchmaker.com. I received a beta test, free 48-hour test of it. The internet was so slow at that time that there were no photos like in some of the, the new dating apps. So you had to answer like a hundred questions and write two essays and the algorithm 
put Johanna first on my list, even though it looked like from the face of it that we had absolutely nothing in common. <laughs> she is now my wife and we have two lovely boys, Charlie and Gus. Charlie's 17, Gus is 14, and they are just great, great boys. We spend a lot of time playing games. We're a family of games, so board games, athletic sports, but academics is very important in our family as well. Of course. And you walked us through a, a selling sales process on pitching some of <laughs> your, your guy friends on going to Vegas, but what else do you like to do to relax and recharge? So I'm definitely not a skier. I went skiing once and as you know, I'm not a small person. So I think I hit <laughs> three different people that day. And so I thought for the safety <laughs> of others, I should stick to sports that are closer to the beach. So always love the beach. I went to Annapolis, right. you know, I'm uh, trained on boats as well. So we have a boat, we have our second home in Mexico on the beach. So fishing, boating. Water sports are all very important to my family. As you know, I take my high school friends to Vegas to gamble on the NCAAs. So I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I taught my two boys to gamble for money in poker and backgammon from the age of about seven years old. <laughs> and I'm proud to say they're very good at both of those things. So I may have raised them a little differently than other people. <laughs> other games a strategy. So I think just different ways to look at it. Exactly. <laughs> Any new habits or things that changed in your life because of the pandemic that you're going to keep moving forward? Well, I, I definitely jumped on this notion of virtual teaching very rapidly. Since I taught some of your classes virtually, I have a multi-thousand dollar virtual teaching setup now at home. And as an entrepreneur, I think we look at crisis and then try to figure out what are the positives that can come. I mean, this was such a horrific period. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of learnings to come out of it and a lot of innovation to come. And that's the key out of crisis. There's innovation. And so I think virtual teaching and virtual offices and virtual companies are going to change the way we interact with people well beyond the crisis. So there are certain behaviors that are not going back. Yeah. And so I see my ability now is to reach out to so many more new people, right? Just recently through our executive program, I just taught a group from Nanyang University, which is in Singapore. And the fact that we can now take our learnings from Silicon Valley and UC Berkeley and now start teaching other universities and not having them necessarily come to UC Berkeley physically, I think is a game changer. I think the other thing it's going to do for venture capitalists is prior to COVID, there was a sense that you needed to be within driving distance of the companies you invested in. Mm -hmm. Well, now I think the monopoly of Silicon Valley is going to be broken and we're going to see multiple other Silicon Valleys popping up in part because California Innovation Fund can now invest in companies anywhere in the world because we can interact with them and still support them. Right. So I think I'm going to take a lot of what we learned from COVID in terms of virtual communication and bring it forward in my own life. Yeah. I think it'll be really interesting to see where startups are in five years from now. We're already seeing it now to your point of VCs 
finally opening up to more virtual pitches and investments outside of their backyard. I think it'll be fascinating to see where the world evolves. Awesome. So last question, a little self-serving. Okay. And on behalf of the classes of 2022, so you've already given us three really great pieces of life advice, but any other advice or words of wisdom for the graduating class? I think I'm going to stick with my three. I think right. those are my guiding principles, <laughs> right? So yeah. treat people with respect, be humble, and celebrate the small victories. Love it. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. You got it, Paulina. Thanks for tuning in to Here at Haas. Know a Haasie that has a story to tell? Nominate them on our website, haaspodcast.org. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to share this podcast with your favorite bears. Until next time, I'm Paulina Lee, and this is Here at Haas. <laughs>